Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you for tuning in. I, I wanted to air a special um, episode conversation that I did recently with a new friend of mine named Reed Uberman, who hosts a podcast called Indie Thinker, uh, where he just has these conversations about the Christian worldview and how we apply it to politics and how we engage and fight in the cultural battles uh, on behalf of the most vulnerable, on behalf of truth, uh, to promote our, our faith in every sphere of public life to embrace a comprehensive Christianity. And he has great conversations with great thought leaders all around the country. And so uh, we were able to sit down and do an episode a while back talking about the top five pro-choice arguments um, and how we respond to those. And we had a great dialogue on all of those. So hope you guys enjoy this episode. Um, before, we, uh, we, before we play it for you, I want you to just head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, if you will. Uh, give us a rating and review. It really helps us reach more people. Um, we're in a moment where I think there's a stirring happening in the country, especially in the church of people eager to get involved, to fight on behalf of righteousness and the unborn. There's a recognition that we've abandoned the public square and we need to start contending for truth again. But that really begins with life because if you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. So do that for us. It's a small thing that really helps our podcast move up the charts so more people see it. But enjoy this episode and conversation with my friend Reed Uberman of the Indie Thinker podcast answering the five top pro-choice arguments for abortion. Thanks so much. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman. I am really excited about my guest today, Seth Gruber. Seth Gruber is one of our country's youngest thought leaders on the issue of abortion. He is a nationally renowned pro-life speaker for Life Training Institute and is represented by the Ambassador Speakers Bureau. He is also the host of a fantastic podcast of his own called Unaborted, and I've been listening to it uh, and just absolutely think it's phenomenal, man. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Absolutely, bro. Yeah, man. It's good stuff. I, I, I appreciate what you're doing. We need more Christians who have a robust Christian worldview and a comprehensive faith that impacts every sphere of their life. And we need more of those people who are who are saturating the digital marketplace, um, the new marketplace of ideas with Christian ideas, with good ideas, with the ideas that founded this country, uh, because we've let the left dominate that marketplace for too long. And that's a lot of where young people and individuals are shaping their worldviews. So praise God for your voice on these platforms. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I totally agree with you. I was watching, um, I teach history too, to high schoolers. And I was watching the other day, Amazing Grace, uh, with some of, some of my students. And I, and it, this seems so simple, but I feel like we have to justify it anymore, uh, especially with Christians, is he's struggling with like the political life or the preacher life. And somebody says, well, I humbly suggest that you can do both. Uh, right. That you should tie in what you're doing with activism to your your Christian faith and and actually impact the culture. I know that's such a crazy thing, but you know I sometimes think people think I'm actually crazy because I'm like um, I, for 18 years of my life I've been in full time ministry doing pastoral ministry roles and stuff like that, and now I'm commenting about what's going on with our economy, co commenting about socialism, commenting about critical race theory, and uh, you know racism in America and that whole conversation. And and then even abortion uh, today, which unfortunately is becoming less and less a talked about topic in church, it seems. Um, so yeah, man. So I'm just, I'm in this place where I just, I think we have to start making a difference in the culture. 2020 revealed to me that we're making less of an impact behind, uh, outside of these four walls, I think, than probably any other time in my life. That's right. 
oh, but Reed, you're just you're just trying to build a theocracy. You're just making an idol out of politics. You probably just want to force people to convert to Christianity and use political power to do it. Absolutely. I mean, these stupid, <laughs> ridiculous talking points we get about Christians who want to put their faith into the political sphere. Yeah. It's just scandalous. And so as I'm actually fond of saying, Reed, and I think this is actually very true. I you think you'll probably agree with this. Many woke Christians and politically neutral pastors and leaders, right, who say, we're not a political church. We don't talk about those issues. <laughs> they accuse people like Frank Ramsor, Rob McCoy, Jack Hibbs. They accuse these pastors of making an idol out of politics, right? That's one of the biggest accusations. It's like, hey, that's idolatry, brother. You know, you need to focus on great commission, preaching the gospel, make disciples. That's it. And now, you know, you, you, you seem like you're just becoming a red GOP hack and you're, you're idolatrizing the, the pulpit and politics and you need to stop that. I found that actually it's the people who, who accuse us of doing that. They've actually made a pol- an idol out of not being political. Yeah. And can, yeah. can, can, can you make an idol out of politics? Of course you can, because the heart is an idol factory. <laughs> We're fallen, <laughs> yeah. simple human beings. We it's make true. idols out of everything, don't we? Uh, yeah. So, of course, you can read. Of course, it's possible to do that. Um, but most of the God-fearing men and women I meet across the country through my speaking that care about the pro-life issue, they're trying to get involved politically and accrue political power to wield that political power for justice and righteousness, yeah. to, to stop the slaughter and genocide of baby image bearers who are being killed at the tune of a million a year. They want to exercise political power because they want to put their faith into every sphere of political life. So ironically, it's actually the people who accuse us, Reed, of making an idol out of politics who've, who have actually made an idol out of not being political. And yeah. they care so much about being perceived as apolitical so that they don't scare away the registered Democrats who type to their church, that they're willing to abandon the pre-born at the ballot box in order to keep the tithing of their registered Democrats. And if that's not an idol, I don't know what is. You know, I fear, I, I, I 100% agree with you, but I also fear that sometimes it's not even as uh, well thought out. And I know you're saying it's coming almost subtle, but I wonder if it's, if it's also something more scandalous than just that they're religiously irreligious or they're uh, religiously apolitical. Uh, right, because we're 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 all not a fans of what religion does, but a fans fans of Jesus. But I can't help but wonder if what we're actually doing is we're just couching our cowardice in compassionate language, and really all it is is a front for cowardice. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's it's absolute it's absolute cowardice. And the very pastors and Christian leaders read who say who either say or they believe about themselves that if they had lived in 1940s Germany, oh man, they would have been part of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's confessing church. No. They would have been part of the assassination organized attempt against Adolf Hitler. Uh, or, or if we lived in 1850s Germany, Reed, I would be I would be giving Frederick Douglass the opportunity to preach from my pulpit and we would be part of Harriet Tubman's Underground Railroad. And man, we would be voting only for Republicans because yeah. in 1850, it was only the Republican Party who provided an opportunity to end slavery. The pastors who say that or believe that about themselves are, are, are generally, for the most part, are completely uninvolved politically to protect the preborn yeah. uh, within the imperfect and flawed GOP that provides the only opportunity for Christians to end abortion in America. And so it's complete cowardice. Um, and so, so the very individuals who say that they can't get involved politically because they don't want to harm their witness, how they're perceived by others, because they only want to be perceived as being related to Christ and not a political party. The very individuals who say that they they don't 
they couldn't vote for Trump and they couldn't get involved politically because they care so much about their witness, Reed, are the very pastors who aren't concerned with how their witness has been harmed by not advocating for the unborn politically. Because you know what, Reed, there's a lot of pagans in this country who hate Christians and they think we're hypocrites and they think we're not consistent and they don't think we're the real deal because their critique, not all of them, but many of them, one of the major critiques against Christians and pro-lifers in the church read is that, hey, if those Christians believed what they said they believed, yes. that, that uh-huh. their God entered human history in a uterus <laughs> and that every human being is created in the image of that prenatal Christ, then they would view abortion as genocide if they actually believe that. And they would become the biggest GOP hacks I know. Because they would recognize that the only way to love a class of neighbors that it's legal to kill is to make it illegal to kill them. And the way you do that is through a political party, through legislators that we've given our consent to govern us. And so that's one of the critiques against Christians. It's like, hey, guys, you don't actually believe abortion is genocide or that your savior was fully God and fully man as a fetus and every other baby is fully human and intrinsically valuable in the womb. Because if you believe that, you would treat this as a genocide. And so it's very funny. It's like, well, I guess you don't care so much about how your witness has been harmed by not advocating for the unborn politically. So it goes back to what you're saying. It's just complete cowardice. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I want to jump into that. So um, I want to provide a a disclaimer before we kind of jump into what I would like to do is I'd like to give the five pro-choice arguments and just kind of hear how you respond to that. Um, I recently heard you speak at my church and uh, a fantastic job, and I found you to be one of the most articulate, one of the most well-informed, and one of the most pointed speakers I think I've ever heard on the subject, quite frankly. So, So I really look forward to kind of having that back and forth with you and then just kind of getting into kind of what I would call, maybe this isn't fair, but kind of like the aftermath of, of what you shared. Because um, because when we're monologuing, that doesn't give people the opportunity to kind of re- retort back with these with these arguments that we so often hear in the culture. And, and I kind of just want to hear what you would say to that. Um, but before I do that, I want to give um, a disclaimer and then we'll jump into continuing to talk a little bit about the state of the modern day church in terms of kind of the issue of, of abortion. But I wanted to do this because you were, were very wise to do this in, in your conversation, uh, at, at our church. And so, um, I want to give this disclaimer. If you've had an abortion, this episode is for you. If you've contemplated an abortion, this episode is for you. If you love life, this episode is for you. If you're pro-choice, this episode is for you because God loves you no matter your past, but he loves you enough to change your future. So I want to make sure that everybody understands that everything we talk about from here on out is meant to display the love of Christ, but to also be incredibly honest about an issue that we have tiptoed around for far too long. So with that being said, I, I use abortion, and I don't know if this is totally fair, as a thermometer for the modern day church, because obviously, obviously we, we believe that life is important for the reasons you just stated so beautifully about the incarnation, about God and, and human form and all of that stuff. Um, we believe that life is, is beautiful and life starts at conception. All right. So, um, and so we, so we honestly, we, we believe that as Christians. All right. But, but there is so much social pressure on Christians right now to cave on that issue. And I'll be honest, there's a lot of um, strategic conversation to rebut the view of Christians, and Christians are so um, dreadfully 
unlike connected to the culture very often that um, that very often those arguments can kind of um, can can work. So I think really I think it's fair to say that abortion is a thermometer for the state of the modern day church. And I'm a little bit disturbed by the fact that I do not hear any of the mainstream, whatever that is, or the mega church pastors that are very popular in America today and represent Christianity uh, really around the world, but certainly in the United States. Um, And I won't name names just just to be fair. (laughs) You can, uh, and I'll talk back with you about it. But just to be honest with you, there's too many to to name. To, to be totally honest. So it's not even to tiptoe around the issue. It's just because, because I don't hear any of them talking about it. And now, I, yeah. I want to be fair. There are pastors in America who are sold out to, pro, to the pro-life movement and all of that stuff. But what is your take, at least in terms of where you think we are as the modern-day church, maybe even from— I know this is not the best way to judge it, but from a pop culture movement, our our um, our ability to impact the culture with more than just cool pastors, but actually impact them with messages that matter. How do how do you feel from your experience and everything that you've seen where we're at as a church in terms of our stance on pro life? Right. Well, the church today in America, Reed, is more comfortable than they've ever been before. And I mean, this is this is something we can all fall into, right? I'm not saying I'm not immune from this, um, but it's something we have to be very aware of. I mean, we, we've had it pretty good in America for a long time. And, you know, we take our liberties and freedoms for granted now, right? And we're incredibly, um, we're incredibly numb and blinded to, to the situation that and time in history that we find ourselves, right? Scripture says that God determined the, the, sort of the timeline, the time and place of our being, right? So it's not an accident that we find ourselves in America in 2021. That's how God intended it. And he has a purpose for it. He has a reason for it. And so rather than um, exercising stewardship over the liberties we've been given and really the political power we've been given to seek righteousness and restrain evil uh, in so far in so far as it's possible, given current political realities, we've largely abandoned um, that stewardship role um, because it requires getting uncomfortable and and we end up getting attacked for it, don't we? Uh, when you stand for life, when you stand for common sense truths like men can't be women and women can't be men, when you stand for truths like we shouldn't chop off the genitalia of minors because they played with a Sally doll once and their mom said, oh, you must be a girl. Um, when we stand against the culture of death, we're attacked for it. We're called bigots. Uh, we're called homophobes. Um, we're called um, Christians who are trying to create a theocracy, right? We're just trying to require adherence to the Christian religion or else. Yeah. Um, we're called <laughs> that we're making an idol, an idol out of politics from woke pastors all around the country. Yeah. So there's a cost. But the cost that we have to count, at least right now, Reed, uh, in order to stand for truth is is virtually nothing compared to the cost that men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer had to count. Um, men like Oscar Schindler and uh, women, young women like Sophie Scholl in the White Rose resistance in Germany, uh, people who were murdered um, for their resistance to the culture of death, for their resistance to a genocide. That's exactly what the Holocaust was. Well, today, not only is a, is a abortion the, the greatest genocide in human history, um, but it also happens that in America, 
we have freedom and liberties to participate in the public square to help end the genocide of baby image bearers. This country was founded by activist preachers who understood that their faith needed to go into every realm of life. And so, you know, our the our British brothers and sisters came here to to found a country where they could exercise true religious liberty. I mean, that's the founding of America. So the ability to worship God freely and to live out your faith fully. So what a blessing, right, that we can participate in sidewalk counseling to save babies outside of abortion clinics and not be arrested, that we can vote and we can determine what type of individuals govern us. And But we don't even get uncomfortable enough to do that, Reed. Yeah. And if we can't get uncomfortable enough to do that and take the verbal heat and occasional, occasional physical violence that comes from it, then guess what? Those same individuals would 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 have done nothing to stop the Holocaust in Germany because Dietrich and his friends were willing to sacrifice their lives to help save Jews and try to end the the insanity of the Nazi genocide. And so so it's a really it's you know, the way you put it was actually brilliant. The abortion very much is a thermometer for the church. Um, The way I say it is abortion is a litmus test of our republic. It's also a litmus test of the church. Because abortion strikes at the very heart of who we are as a people in a republic, right? Abortion denies the founding principles of our republic, which is that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and women endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are the right to life. Oh, look, Reed, they put the right to life first, because if you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. Uh, And so the right to life is not just one rights among many. It's actually the prerequisite right uh, without which no other rights can be exercised or realized. The right to liberty and property in pursuit of happiness don't mean much. In fact, they mean nothing at all if you can be murdered. And so as long as our government read continues to deny the natural right to life to an entire class of human beings, our own rights will constantly be endangered by modern jurists and a ruling class whose jurisprudence is completely foreign to the founding fathers. As long as we ignore the right to life of the unborn, we cannot trust that government to protect any other right that flows from the first and most important of all rights. So that's why abortion is not just one issue among many. It's actually, it's actually, uh, it's actually the vital and preeminent issue. And that's not actually, you hear me, if you guys listening to this, that's not to say that I'm dismissing other important justice issues. I'm not saying other issues don't matter. I'm just saying that, that abortion is the issue of our day. Yes, so for while, sure. While, while many issues are important, they don't all carry the same moral weight. Exactly. Like when people look back at 1850s America, read. Do you think that sex trafficking wasn't happening? Do you think that spousal abuse and child abuse wasn't happening? Do you think poverty wasn't an issue? No, those those things were all happening. But when we look back at 1840s, 1850s America, we think of slavery because it was such a stain on our country. It was such a denial of our founding principles. And abortion is wrong for the same reasons that slavery and the Holocaust are wrong. Yeah. Because while the context contexts are different the moral framework is the same because in each situation, a government denied natural rights, denied personhood to actual human beings, and then dehumanized that victim class through euphemisms in order to justify their mistreatment and slaughter. So they're wrong for the same reasons. This is why I want to kind of, I want to say this carefully because there's been this, especially among white pastors, there's been this 
question like why this resistance to the BLM movement or to critical race theory in churches and stuff like that. And there's many reasons. Um, but, but I think the underlying suggestion there is, oh, you have some implied racism that you're not aware of. And there's racism in the church. And this is what I heard. Like, uh, Carl Lentz was one of the first people to come out and I heard this, this, uh, what I talking we're talking about how the church is the most segregated place on a Sunday morning, and this is the real issue. And the reason there's resistance to these kind of issues is that when we look statistically at what police brutality is doing in America, and we, when we look statistically at what abortion is doing in America, there is no comparison, empirically speaking. That is not to say that we don't need to even have conversations about police brutality in church, whatever. Fine, let's do that, fine. Let's have have a conversation about the merits of Black Lives Matter and their Marxist leanings and whether or not we want to get behind a church just so that we can post our black square or have our uh, serve team members wear Black Lives Matter face masks and show how woke we are to the to yeah, Instagram. Yeah, right. uh, it, it, it's not, that's, okay, fine. Let's have that conversation, but let's have it proportionally. Let's have that conversation also in the context of the greater, more, more genocidal, which is what we Christians like generally believe, uh, more genocidal issue of abortion, which most churches want to remain entirely silent about. Yeah. Well, and, and Black Lives Matter doesn't believe the Black Lives Matter. So yeah. if you're listening to this, let me be very clear. Black Lives Matter doesn't give two effing bleeps about black lives. I, I, I'm, I'm going to speak as clearly right now as I will in this entire episode. This needs to be very clear. Yeah. Black Lives Matter Incorporated doesn't give two flying bleeps about black lives. And I'll give you four reasons. The first and most important read, they're pro-abortion. Before Black Lives Matter got repopularized after George Floyd, because they were around before that, you remember, it was in the wake of the um, uh, Ferguson uh, or something like that. Um, uh, the, the killing of, what was his name? Um, oh, Michael Brown. Michael Brown. That's when Black Lives Matter got launched. By the way, it was launched on a lie. The entire movement and organization was launched on a lie. According to Barack Obama's Justice Department. Exactly. Thank you, Reed. That, according, uh, allegedly, he put his hands up and said, don't shoot. And so that became the shirt, right? It became the saying, hands up, don't shoot. Complete BS was a total lie. He bum rushed the cop and tried to take his handgun out of the officer's belt. Uh, okay, well, now you're fully justified to shoot that man. And that would hold true across racial lines. You don't get to try to take the handgun from an officer. I'm sorry, that's not how this works. Yeah. And that's true for all races. So, so firstly, the, the movement and organization launched on a lie, on a complete lie. Secondly, they're pro-abortion. They removed their pro-abortion language from their website read right after George Floyd. Why did they remove it? They probably recognized it wasn't such a good PR uh, strategy to have all this stuff about abortion and killing black babies on a website called blacklivesmatter.com. Um, I viewed their website. I should have taken screenshots, but I, I viewed their website multiple times. I did research on them in, uh, in 2017, 2018, all before George Floyd. Crazy reproductive justice euphemisms on their website. Okay, they removed it. Uh, Alicia Garza, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, read, teamed up with Cecile Richards a couple years ago. Who was Cecile Richards? The former president of Planned Parenthood and, and a white lady, by the way. So if you want to adopt the premises of critical race theory, you'd actually be forced to condemn Planned Parenthood because it was led by a white racist who oversaw the greatest slaughter of unarmed black lives in the world. Anyways, you're not supposed to say that. So they <laughs> team up to start an organization called Supermajority. You can go do, there's still an organization, you can find them. So Supermajority's goal was to train up 2 million young women to be political abortion activists leading up to the 2020 election to get rid of Orange Man Bat, to get rid of Trump. So you've got the founder of an organization called Black Lives Matter 
teaming up with the 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 biggest murderer of unarmed black lives planned parenthood um to train people to defend abortion the number one killer of black lives so black america accounts for 30 percent of the american public you know this so what's half of that so um so so six and a half percent um would be women um are all of those women of childbearing age no so six and a half percent of women in america are are black women in america uh let's say three percent of them are of childbearing age so three percent of the american public read obtains 37 percent of the abortions Um, this is all through through the cdc this is all available online so Three percent of the American public responsible for thirty-seven percent of the abortions. Planned Parenthood knows this, uh, and that they get a disproportionate amount of their income from such a small sample size of of the American citizenry. And so, according to a study by Protecting Black Life, they put seventy-nine percent of their surgical abortion facilities within walking distance of majority Black neighborhoods, fulfilling Margaret Sanger's dream, the racist eugenicist founder of Planned Parenthood, to control and decrease the Black population. Okay, so Black Lives Matter doesn't care black, about Black lives because the number one killer of black lives is abortion. According to the Washington Post, 12 unarmed men, 12 to 14 unarmed uh, black men were shot by police officers in 2019. Half of them were still dangerous. They just didn't have a firearm. They were still attacking the cop. So being most generous, you had about six unarmed black men who were shot by police officers in 2019. And based off of that number, we're supposed to say America is systemically racist. What about 370,000 unarmed black lives, Read? who are womb lynched, who are lynched in the womb every year. Um, and Planned Parenthood kills about 1,000 black babies a day. Okay, yeah, or the abortion industry does, uh, writ large. So Black Lives Matter doesn't care about black lives because they're the number one killer of black lives. They don't care about black lives because they're silent on the black on black crime. Black on black crime is actually the second number one killer of blacks after abortion. It's, it's other black people killing other black people. By the way, just so people don't accuse me of being a racist, the same thing's true of whites. The most people who kill white people are white people. So it's just it's just a it's just sort of a statistical reality. So they're silent on black on black crime, which is significantly more dangerous to black lives than white police officers. They're also silent on the fatherlessness rate, which is the number one predictor of of future crime and of whether you'll end up incarcerated. Where are the black fathers? They're silent on that. And lastly, black well, hey, just to interject, they're not t- technically silent on that because they actually said something and they also erased that from their website too, but they don't believe in the nuclear family. This to disrupt the Western contrived notion of the nuclear family. What does that mean? Fathers in the home. It means mothers and fathers. So they've actually said essentially that they don't like black fathers. So, but black right. lives, black fathers matter. Uh, as well. And then lastly, um, they actually oppose school choice. Did you know this, Reed? They oppose school choice, like most Democrats do. Uh, School choice is the best way for for children in low performing schools to get into better schools and guess and and in the the worst performing schools tend to be in large Democrat run cities. Where do most black Americans live in large Democrat run cities? So the best thing to help black lives is to support the choice of their parents to put them in a different area of the city that they don't live in, in a better school. And they oppose that as well. So listeners, listen, wake up, okay? Black Lives Matter, it's just a linguistic cudgel because it sounds good. Black Lives Matter, who could be opposed to that? It's a linguistic cudgel to hit you over the head over and over and over again. And so if you say you're opposed to the mission of Black Lives Matter, they say, what, are you a racist? You don't believe Black Lives Matter? No, I actually do believe Black Lives Matter, which is why I'm pro-life, I'm for school choice, I want more black fathers in the home, and I and I want the black-on-black violence to end. All of the things that Black Lives Matter is on the other side of. So that we just need to say that very clear, because yeah. woke, cowardice pastors like Carl freaking Lentz, who cheats on his wife and, and goes on to 
of the and goes on to uh the show with uh is it Whoopi Goldberg or whatever uh the view oh, the view and, yeah, and it's and is asked about abortion and he says it's a private issue I would just ask yeah, yeah whatever God doesn't care God loves you no matter what these kind of woke pastors who say we need to talk about Black Lives Matter none of them talk against abortion so yeah. anyways that's my soapbox. Right. Right. Well, it's a good soapbox. So before we jump into kind of the uh, the opposition argument, I, I want to just ask you real quick, because the biggest question that because of how bold you are and how outspoken you are and how, which is so crazy to me, how seriously you actually take the death of babies, which should be such a given for Christians. Um, the the biggest uh, question that I found people in my peer circle where you had spoken, the biggest question they had was this, is uh, what about the backlash and and did they experience backlash? And I'll just be totally honest. There were, there were some people that I said, did you feel like as Seth was talking that there might've been people who got up because they were uncomfortable with the the honesty that was coming from the pulpit that morning? Um, and so I, I can't help but just wanna ask you that question and, and just because of curiosity. Have you experienced backlash um, from specifically, because uh, I can understand this from people in the culture, but I mean specifically from Christians in churches that you know of uh, when when you've spoken about this issue? Yeah, sometimes I do. Uh, recently, God's just happened to align me with brave pastors who have exercised such wonderful shepherding over their flock for so long that their people were already primed and mature enough to hear my message. But I've spoken in some churches, Reed, where I've had pastors tell me, uh, hey, brother, so glad to have you here. We're pro-life. Just don't talk about politics, okay? Uh, and, and I always tell those pastors, you know, I like to say, oh, so, hey, I just want to ask you a question. So you, you, it's, it's 1858. Stephen Douglas, the racist Democrat, has just announced his run against Abraham Lincoln for the 1860 election. And uh, you're a pastor of a church in the South where slavery is legal. And Frederick Douglass approaches you and he says he'd like to preach a sermon on how the church should be the ones ending slavery in this country because human beings are created in the image of God. And you tell Frederick Douglass, amen, brother, so grateful for your voice. We're definitely an anti-slavery church. Um, just don't talk about politics, okay? Yeah. Um, what an asinine thing to say, Reed. The Democratic Party was the party of lynchings, the party of slavery, and you had a racist Democrat who wanted to protect states' rights to protect slavery. I, running against Abraham Lincoln, a flawed and perfect man who was quite incredible, who wanted to end slavery. And you're telling a black leader who wants to end slavery that he can preach about abortion, uh, preach about slavery and the role of the church to end slavery, but that he can't talk about the way you end it? which yeah. is through politics. What a stupid thing to say. So yeah, so I, I get pastors who say that don't talk about politics. So that, that just means they don't understand what self-governance means. They don't understand what 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 stewarding our gift here in America actually means. But yeah, I get backlash. I get messages, of course, you know, through Instagram and Facebook of like, ah, rah, rah, you're such a disgrace. And I had a couple of people on my Facebook from Calvary Chapel Chattanooga say this was a horrifically inappropriate message for Mother's Day. And I actually said that to Frank Reed and he was like, well, that guy would have said that any other Sunday too. <laughs> like, Amen, dude. I freaking love you. So, yeah. I mean, your pastor is just a hero of mine. What, what a man among me men. too. Um, and those are the kind of leaders and pastors we need in this moment more so than any other time. So I get that backlash, but I don't really care. You know, I just don't really care. I just take the Bonhoeffer approach, which is essentially to say that if you can't speak out against and stand to end the genocide of babies, then you, like German churches who allowed the Holocaust, might be possessed of a cheap grace. Yeah. Which is, in other words, is to say a Jesus you, you've created in your own image. 
Mm, I love that. And, uh, and I do got to mention this just as a side note, we don't have to talk about it, but, uh, as far as the, the use of politics in terms of, uh, maybe you might even say gospel issues, but just in terms of the use of Christians in politics and moral civil responsibility, um, they, uh, pastors who deny the power of politics or the use of politics for, for, uh, for religious purposes or for Christian purposes don't understand theology either. They, uh, because Augustine said something that I think you'll find fascinating. He said that, um, that, that Christians should use the spoils of Egypt for the glory of God. And so what he means by that is he's talking about the, the, the treasures that came from Egypt eventually became the foundation for the building of the temple. And what he was actually saying is, is that Christians should use secular education as a means to help themselves become better gospel preachers. Um, so you might, he's not necessarily talking about seminary or anything like that, but he's just talking about how we don't need to discount every Thing in the world as just the material world. Let's push that away. Um, but we can use anything at our disposal for the glory of God, because in fact, there is no place on the planet where the glory of God should not be felt. Because you know what? who owns politics? It's not the right or the left. It's Jesus. You know who owns? Uh, you know who owns every single child that's born um, and unborn. Uh, unfortunately, Jesus. Uh, he he is the head over everything. And and we don't understand our own Bible if we don't understand that Jesus deserves headship over every area of our life. Um, and that's certainly true of the abortion well, issue. Well, politics, Reed, it's just an opportunity to love neighbor. Yeah. Um, this should not be complex. So, so, um, John Foster Dulles, um, on, he is his former secretary of state, uh, had this great line in, in May of 1954, he was asked by a Danish student, um, uh, of this idea of, uh, politics and loving neighbor and the role of the Christian and former secretary of state, John Foster Dulles stated that neighborly love in political actions means loving others based on the brotherhood that was created with God, the father of all. It means that the political power of any government must be considered an opportunity not to favor individuals, but to do well for all. Mm -hmm. And so for Christians who were told that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, politics just becomes another, another outpouring of that, another opportunity to love neighbor. And so how should we love a neighbor that it's legal to kill? Well, if it was legal to kill me, Reed, while I would appreciate you raising funds to take care of my family if I was murdered, I would really appreciate you passing laws to protect me and say that people can't kill me. Um, so the best way to love the pre-born is to make it illegal to kill them. And the way you do that in America is through passing laws, and that means getting political. All right. So with that being said, let's uh, let's flip the script a little bit, and then let's jump into some of these things. I want to, if we have time at the end, I want to ask you about uh, the Phil Vischer video, who's the VeggieTales guy, um, oh when, <laughs> and what he said about abortion, just because I, I think that's fascinating. So if we have time, we'll get to that. All right. But first of all, um, women have a moral right to decide to do with their bodies what they want to do with their bodies. Uh, and I'm just going to throw a side note here before we talk about that. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Sticks and Stones. Uh, it's incredibly vulgar. It's a Dave Chappelle comedy special. But what he says, uh, what he says about abortion is just absolutely fantastic. It's fire. So, um, all right. So, so, so it, 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 when a Christian speaks to somebody and stands up, um, you know, on their two, on their two legs and says, um, I'm pro-life and they say, well, what do you think, why do you think you have the right to tell a woman what to do with her body? How do we respond to that? 
Yeah, they gosh, man. These 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 like overly used phrases have just become um they've just become like a <laughs> they've just become like a linguistic liturgy of the left. I mean, these things are so it's like it's like their catechism, Reed. I mean, these things are just become so overly said and used. And that's really what people need to understand. Like the religion of the culture of death is secular progressivism, which is based on secular humanism, which is based on relativism. And this is the underlying religion and worldview of every Marxist of every communist regime ever. So this is not an alternative politics, it's an alternative religion. People need to wake up to that. And so this is really just like a, it's like a it's like a liturgy it's like a linguistic liturgy it's, it's essentially just the catechists of of the left and so they have these 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 chants that they just participate in over and over and over again my body my choice bodily autonomy okay so listen the body in your body is not your body lady uh because if you were pregnant with a boy you don't have a penis okay i mean this is this should be so self-evident uh if we're told my body my choice right which assumes how many bodies are involved read one my body, my choice. It assumes one body is involved. Is that true that one body is involved? Well, if you care about science, you'd have to say no. The science of embryology says from the moment of conception, you're a distinct living and whole human being. And so if the mother is, is if the body's in her body is actually just her body, then we'd be forced to say that pregnant women have 20 fingers and 20 toes, two <laughs> brains, two hearts, two different DNA codes exist, existing simultaneously, potentially two different blood types existing simultaneously. Oh, and if she's pregnant with a boy, now pregnant women have male genitalia. Now, of course, at this point, the leftists might say, yes, you're That's right. Welcome possible. to UC Berkeley to your lesbian dance theory major, where men are women and women are men. No, no, no. Women do not have penises as much as the okay. left would like to tell you that they can't. So let me let me push back and say, okay, so um, obviously this is predicated upon a presupposition then that life does not begin at conception. So they're going to say, no, that's not a life in my womb. That's like a cluster of cells, right? So they'll look at life on Mars. Then we'll say, yeah, some of them will actually say it is. To make it even worse, many pro-choicers today read, they admit that the unborn is biologically human. That it's that it is fully human. That it uh, its parents are human, therefore it's human, but it's not a person. So the rights of the mother supersede the rights of the child, and that's even more disturbing. That's that's disgusting. Okay, so that kind of that kind of to the side because that seems easier to me to kind of to kind of talk about. But what about uh, the people who want to deny the scientific reality of a life inside of a womb? Right, 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 right. Yeah. So I mean, these people were three things. They were either asleep in junior high biology. They were eating weed brownies and were too high <laughs> to pay attention to what their teacher was saying in junior high biology. Or thirdly, and more likely, they've been indoctrinated with anti-science bigotry from our state schools yeah. um, that should have been teaching the reality of embryology. Embryology, study of the embryo. What's an embryo? A human being at a very early stage in their physical development. The science of embryology for decades, Reed, has known, taught, and communicated that human life begins at the moment of conception. The law of biogenesis states that all living things reproduce after their own kind. So dogs can only beget dogs, cats can only beget cats, a, a male and a female can only beget another human being. This is undisputed scientific fact. And not because I say so, by the way, but because abortionists and pro-abortion activists and pro-abortion philosophers admit this. Yeah. Um, Peter Singer, for example, who, at Princeton University, who defends, by the way, who defends killing babies up to one year outside of the womb because he doesn't believe they're persons. So the arguments that pro-choicers use to deny the personhood to the unborn, Peter Singer is on an honest enough read to admit 
that that same litmus test for personhood would also deny infants the right to personhood. So he's he's actually intellectually honest enough to take his ideas to their horrific, heinous, logical conclusion. Um, and so we understand that human beings begin at the moment of conception. So they're not partially human. They're, it's not like they're becoming a human being, Reed. They are actually fully human. Yeah. And Peter Singer will admit that. He'll say that, that yeah, the science is clear that the unborn is fully human, um, but it, do, it doesn't matter. Um, and so this is plain undisputed at this point. But you have many pro-choice woke leftists in the culture, particularly of the millennial and Gen Z generation, who will just say it's not a human being. Um, but you're seeing that less and less because it's, it's just so blatantly false um, that now they're starting to admit that it's a human, but it, that, that it doesn't matter. You can kill them anyways. So, so the way you communicate that, the way you respond to that, that it's not really a human being is literally, I mean, you could just buy any embryology textbook, um, yeah. and, and show them. If you want to put a link in your show notes, I can send it to you as well. Read if you Google, uh, when does human life begin? And then you enter the word Princeton, uh, Princeton university has this great, uh, PDF on their website. And it's all it is, is it's a collection of citations and quotes from dozens of different embryologists, neonatologists, biologists, and embryology textbooks, all saying that human life begins at the moment of conception. Wow. Um, and so to deny that really today, is just, you just look really stupid. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. just so plainly clear. So, Yeah, it's like saying Jesus uh, might not have been a historical figure. Almost nobody says that, even if you're secular. If you guys enjoy this episode and this show and this has helped you contend for life and this is helpful for you fighting the culture wars on behalf of the preborn, then would you consider supporting the show uh, by becoming a uh, patron of the show, patreon.com forward slash unaborted. This is just how we crowdfund the podcast. We're able to do more episodes, bring on more guests, increase the production value, as well as uh, soon begin to start taking this content to the streets with a, with a video team, be able to record these conversations with people on the issue of life where we apply the ideas we talk about in the show into a conversational format. And that's really the kind of viral friendly content that people really like to watch on YouTube and it helps them watch conversations on controversial topics that maybe they're afraid to have conversations with and equips them and gives them the tools to have those conversations. So please consider becoming a patron of the show by heading over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted and we'll be right back with a whole lot more. So, all right, um, we'll skip one of them and just go to this one. Banning abortion puts women at risk by forcing them to use illegal abortionists. So if you make it illegal in one state, they'll flee to another state. Um, Or if you just generally make it illegal um, across the board, like a federal mandate, you overturn Roe v. Wade, whatever. Um, It's arguable whether or not that even does it. But but all of a sudden now people are – they're going to get abortions one way or the other because where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. What a sexist argument, huh? What yeah. absolute bold-faced sexism from pro-choicers to say that even when abortion's made illegal, women will still be forced. Who's forcing them? No one's forcing them. So what they're saying is women will feel women will choose to arrange dangerous, illegal back alley abortions when abortion's made illegal, because that's just how I guess inherently weak women are, Reed that they will still choose to arrange the death of their unborn child through illegal means, even if doing so endangers their own health and life. Wow. Wow, pro-choicer. You got a pretty low view of women there. I have a much higher view of women that when abortion's made illegal, most of them will choose to obey the law. 
and they won't arrange the death, the murder of their own children illegally, where they could endanger their own life and health as well by by seeking out back alley, dangerous coat hanger abortions or whatever. I have a much higher view of women that most of them will embrace motherhood for the child that they're already a mother to and accomplish everything else as well because they're an image bearer of God with intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. Um, that God wants to use to accomplish wonderful yeah. things in this world. I mean, that's a much higher view of women. So firstly, you have to point out how sexist the pro-choicer is. Um, and we know that the abortion industry is sexist, Reed, because anytime pro-lifers try to pass legislation against gender side, meaning that if you get an abortion because you're pregnant with a girl and you want a boy, so you kill the girl just because it's a girl, every time we try to pass legislation to stop that, the ACLU and Planned Parenthood trods out a lawsuit. So we know how fine they are with sexism. We also know that because Planned Parenthood regularly covers for pimps and sex workers who bring in girls for abortions in Planned Parenthood, and they don't report the fact that these sex traffickers are bringing these girls in for abortion. So they're perfectly fine with sexism. That shouldn't, uh, that shouldn't shock us at all. But let's take that claim really quickly, Reed. So they say, we need to keep abortion legal, Reed, because if we make it illegal, women are going to be forced back into dangerous back alley abortion clinics. And you're not going to believe the type of bloodshed we, we're going to have of women dying. They don't care about the blood being shed of the child, but of the women who are dying from getting that abortion. Here's what they're saying, Reed. They're saying that because some people die trying to kill others, the state should make it safe and legal for them to do so. Mm -hmm. Because some people die, maybe the women, trying to kill others, others being the child in the womb, the state should make it safe and legal for them to kill that child. What? Wow, so let's yeah. apply that. Let's apply that. that premise to any other moral context, Reed, because some school shooters are harmed or killed in the process of trying to kill their classmates. The state should legalize school shootings yeah. because some emotionally disturbed teenagers who walk into a school campus to murder their peers sometimes read they're actually shot by a security officer or an on-campus police officer. Um, to put them down to prevent them from killing others. So some school shooters are harmed or killed in the process of trying to kill others, just like the woman is harmed or killed in the process of trying to kill others in an illegal abortion. So the state should legalize school shootings, Reed. Yeah. What? What a stupid thing to say. I have a better solution. Don't kill your peers with a firearm. Don't kill babies in abortion and don't put yourself in the environment where you can be killed in the process of trying to kill your own unborn child. How about we believe more in women by supporting their their choice to embrace motherhood and not a dangerously arrange the death, the illegal death of their unborn child. And so we know that they would never apply that premise to any other moral context, Reed. So the reason that they're applying that context to the preborn but not to individuals this side of the womb is because they've assumed the unborn child is not fully human or somehow not deserving of the same rights as you and I. So they need to prove that the unborn is not fully human before they support killing the unborn child. And they won't be able to prove the unborn is fully human because the science is on our side. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a real low view of women, too, I might add. Uh, one of the ones I was going to talk to you about is uh, is that women can't reach their full potential if they have an unexpected pregnancy. Well, it's a whole really low view of women, first of all, to think that they can't manage a child um, because we've actually been created with some pretty unique skills, and women especially, which is why I think Christians have a much higher view of women than we've often stereotypically been associated with uh, because motherhood is a superpower, uh, and birthing a baby is a freaking superpower. Superpower, um, That's right. but uh, but also too, um, 
uh, I, one of the things that I never hear is is this idea of uh, of adoption from the pro choice uh, movement, um, and I think that that's that's funny because I think that they have zero arguments for why a woman shouldn't be able to if she is having an unexpected pregnancy and does not feel like she's going to be able to financially or otherwise take care of this child um, uh, to to just put the child up for adoption. That's too easy. No, we have to fight for the right for you to kill that child. Um, but that being said, it brings us to the next one, which is the only out they have for adoption is this. Well, if that baby is a threat to the mother in terms of her well-being. So if she delivers this baby, the doctor says there's a high likelihood because she's high-risk pregnancy that something could happen to her or the child. Or this is a child that is a byproduct of rape or incest, and this woman should not be forced to have the baby of her of her rapist. So what do we say to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, firstly, you have to point out that that Abortions performed on women who have been raped account for about 1% or half of a percent of the annual abortion rate. So simply ask the pro-choicer if they will then join you in fighting to end the 99.5% of all other abortions that aren't performed in cases of rape. And then they always say, no, I believe abortion is a human right. Oh, so why are you using rape victims to make yourself look compassionate? That's what they're doing. They're hiding behind rape victims. And they're appealing to the 1% exception to argue for the norm. They say, I support abortion because if a woman's raped, she shouldn't be forced to bear her that child. Well, she's not being forced. The rapist forced her to bear that child when he impregnated her. We're just saying that unborn children should not be forced to suffer for the crimes of their father. To murder a child because daddy did something wrong is deeply disgusting and ridiculous. And when you say that women need abortion in the cases of rape, what you're saying is it's okay to give the death penalty to a child because daddy did something wrong. Yeah. By the way, rapists never get the death penalty in America, Reed. You probably know this. We, we rarely carry out capital punishment anyways. Um, and so if you just rape a woman, you don't get the death penalty. But the pro-choicer then turns around and says, but we definitely need to give the death penalty to the unborn child who's just as innocent as his or her mother. Yeah. And by the way, you know how much the pro-choicer hates the death penalty, right? The, 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 <laughs> left, the left and the pro-choice movement, they hate the death penalty. They're always trying to That's rally right. against protecting the murderers from the electric chair. But then they'll turn around and, ride and say, man, I love the death penalty in the womb, though. Man, that's just so great, man. Uh, you, well, you're sick, dude. You're sick, and I don't trust you with political power. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so people need to understand that. Enough, now, right? we should have compassion and love for the women who have been raped. And it's because I have compassion and love for the women who have been raped, Reed, which is why I support harsher penalties against rapists than the pro-choicer does. Yeah. Because nearly every pro-choicer opposes the death penalty. I support castrations, Reed. I support castrations for rapists or life in prison in an isolated cell. Okay? Mm -hmm. The pro-choicer doesn't. So yeah. I love and care for the victims of rape far more than you do, you pro-choicer, because I want that woman to get justice and I want their family to get justice. You don't. You want to spring the rapist from the clink so they can rape more women. That's not compassionate. It's also not compassionate to murder children for the crimes of their father. So you need to throw that bigotry right back in their face. We need to stop putting up with this type of arguments. And yeah. I, I meet Christians and pro-lifers all the time, Reed, who say I'm pro-life except in the case of rape. And I say, then you're assuming the religious premises of the religion of secular progressivism. You're assuming the bigotry of choice when you say that. Yeah. And I know children who have been conceived in rape and had been born, Reed, and they're now pro-life activists. So why don't you go look at the child of that, that, that woman's face and tell her that she should have been murdered because the compassionate thing is to kill babies conceived in rape. Okay, I'll be, hopefully I've debunked that one. Now they say, <laughs> well, what about the life or health of the mother, Reed? Yeah. 
right? What, what about if the, the pregnancy is endangering the mother's life, then we need to allow abortion in that circumstance. Guess what? Abortion's never medically necessary to save mom's life. Hmm. This is something even members of the pro-life movement don't know. And most of the church doesn't know because you probably met people read. We both have who say they, these are people who are even against abortion in the case of rape, right? But right. they still grant a premise to the left on the life of the mother exception. And so yep. you'll meet pro-lifers who are passionate about pro-life. I mean, some of these people, they, they actually give money, a lot of money to pro-life groups, but they still believe that sometimes abortion is necessary to save mom's life. It never is. It never is. And I'll tell you why right now, but for your listeners, I've done two episodes with my good friend, Dr. Brent Bowles. Dr. Brent Bowles was, um, is an OBGYN, uh, delivered babies for 30 years, um, and he actually had a practice in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, which he, he just moved to Florida and he's, he's doing a semi-retirement, but he's still saving babies and he's going to seminary. But um, he, uh, we went through this claim and he explained from a, from a medical doctor OBGYN perspective why abortion is actually never medically necessary to save the life of the mother. So you guys can go listen to that with Dr. Brent Bowles on my podcast, but let me explain it to you. So if the pregnancy is what is causing the risk to mom's life, which obviously that's the claim, right? They're saying if if the baby endangers mother's life, then she should be able to get an abortion. So the assumption is that it's the child and the pregnancy that is causing a risk to mom's life. So here's the question, Reed, is abortion the only way to end pregnancy? No. What's the other way to end pregnancy? A C-section or inducing early labor, delivering, in short, delivery, delivering the child through inducing early labor or through a C-section and through, and through delivering the child, uh, mom's no longer pregnant, Reed. So if mom's no longer pregnant, then there's not a pregnancy risk to her life. So even in high risk situations where mom could die from the pregnancy, that it doesn't mean that you have to put you have to forcibly dilate the cervix to to fit forceps up her vaginal canal to rip the child apart. No, that's actually more dangerous for mom read yes. than inducing early labor or performing a C-section. Yeah. And so what you would do in these very rare circumstances where if, if allowing the child to develop any longer would take mom's life, what you would do is you wouldn't murder the child, you would deliver them. Um, and thanks, thanks to medical advancements and scientific advancements, Reed, guess what? Great news for your listeners. Great news for all of America. We can almost always save the life of both mother and child. Yeah. We can almost always do that because even when mom is in a very dangerous situation, Reed, usually you can get her on bed rest and take care of her yes. and treat her and the other patient, the unborn child, take care of them both until that child is developed enough to be safely delivered right? And then be able to survive in a neonatal unit. The earliest baby to have been born and survived in America was born at 21 weeks and zero days. That's nearly half of the entire pregnancy because full gestation is 40 weeks. So as long as we can get that baby to 24 or 25 weeks today, Reed, you're almost guaranteed to be able to save their life. Now let's let, now let's assume in the super, 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 super minority, we're talking like a handful of cases, right? A year probably in the country where mom's going to die. If the child develops past 19 weeks at 19 weeks, you can't deliver that baby and save their life. In that circumstance, you would deliver the baby, give the baby to mom and dad to have as much time as possible. Unfortunately, that child can't survive 
but you haven't intentionally killed them. Right. But you had to deliver them early to save mom's life. And, and, and so that it's very different between intentionally killing the child through an abortion and delivering them early to, so mom doesn't die um, with the foreseen but unintended consequence that the child dies. Yeah, I don't want to steal your thunder if you were going to go here, but but you said something just to roll the tape back a little bit about um, the danger of actually um, – uh, of the danger to the mother and how serious that danger is. The reality is, is the danger of an abortion is way more severe than the danger of any high-risk pregnancy that we presently know about, especially when you take into account the psychological effects that many women experience after they have had an abortion. You know, we have these weird freak stories of these uh, woke, pink-haired liberals being excited about their abortion on YouTube and all that kind of on social media and stuff like that. Let's face it. The reality is, is the vast majority of women suffer in silence and don't go on YouTube or social media to talk about how pained they are that they ended their, their baby's life. Um, not to mention the fact that if something is left in uh, the woman's body after an abortion, it is very, very toxic to them. They can die. Um, so the risk of having an abortion is way higher than the risk of having a high-risk pregnancy. That's right. Yep. So, yep. so if you really care about the mother's life as a pro-choicer, you would always support early delivery in a life-threatening situation rather than abortion. And this should be very self-evident. I mean, we should, I, I can cite the studies for you guys. I can dive into the paper that claimed years ago that abortion was 14 times safer than childbirth. I covered that with Dr. Brent Bowles on my podcast, but check it out. I can dive into that if you want, but I shouldn't have to. It should be self-evident, right? Like it should be pretty self-evident that it's safer to allow your naturally bodily functions to operate and not forcibly dilate the cervix and stick and stick forceps up the birth canal as you try very carefully not to rip through the uterine lining, which is like wet tissue. I mean, this should be pretty self-evident that childbirth is significantly safer than abortion. And, and if you, and if someone can't grasp that on a self-evident level, like I got nothing for you, man, like you, you need to convert from the religion of secular progressivism to Christianity because you're living in an upside down reality. Yeah. And so the last question, and this may be kind of an upside down reality too. Um, but I, I do have friends that are, that are Christians, but even, uh, friends that kind of align themselves with libertarian principles, but are not Christian. And they would say, okay, Reed, you're a conservative. You believe in small government. So shouldn't a conservative minded person believe in less government intrusion instead of more government intrusion? So why are you trying to get the federal government to, um, to, to, you know, weigh in on this issue? Yeah. Right. Awesome. Libertarian. Good to know you would have been pro-slavery. <laughs> awesome. Good to know you would have voted for Stephen yeah. Douglas, you libertarian, because you know what? I support less big government and I want smaller government. And so each state should be able to decide whether they purchase blacks and whip them like cows. Ha <laughs> ha. Hashtag libertarianism. Oh, wait. Uh, the libertarian right read goes, um, no, that's not libertarianism, because when the natural rights of individuals are violated, then the federal government is justified in stepping right. in to prevent the abuse of those rights. Yeah. Uh, uh huh. 
now now do abortion libertarian now do abortion (laughs) abortion says that the right to life can be stripped of the unborn human being who we know is fully human because their parents have deemed them unwanted and a non-person just like the democratic party deemed blacks unwanted and non-persons oh yes the historical bigotry of slavery it's a repetition of history the same ideas what is that same idea not all humans are persons (laughs) Mm, they said blacks are humans but not persons and they say the unborn child is a human but not a person and so even if you're a libertarian and and i'm not i'm a conservative and and you know i could dive into the ideas about why i believe libertarianism is, is is unfounded and wrong but even if you were to be a true libertarian you would actually have to be pro life because you would have to recognize that the, the first and most important of all natural rights, life, is being denied to the preborn. And if ever there was a circumstance for the libertarian to support massive big federal government stepping in, it would be to protect the natural rights that our, that our country was founded on. Absolutely. One would think so. Yeah. All right. So uh, if you've got just a little bit of time, uh, the last thing, and all of that was fantastic. And I feel like Uh, So let me step back and say, I just feel like we don't equip ourselves with these answers. Um, Maybe we do apologetics from a gospel perspective, but we really don't even do that. And um, we (laughs) maybe we barely read our Bible, but I don't think we do cultural apologetics very well in terms of these issues. So I think the disconnect for Christians so very often is the thing that fuels their lack of confidence to be able to speak about these issues. But the reality is, is that's just an excuse. We're talking about life. We're talking about the unborn, and we're talking about millions of deaths annually. So we have to push aside our excuses, and I hope that in some way that was able to kind of equip people for whatever discussions they may have on a college campus or whatever conversations they may have on social media to not back down from these issues, but to feel like they can have an assertive voice of reason in uh, in these issues. All right, so with that being said— um, <laughs> I found it up almost appalling, but I don't want to be pearl clutching here, that uh, Phil Vischer w- would release a video mocking Republicans for being one-issue voters. Now, That's right. I understand. I don't know if you have you seen this video that I'm talking about. I have, yeah. Okay, so I I know I know it's probably and it was released a while back, but I've been uh, refreshing my outrage with with watching it recently just because. I realize that I have met these Christians. These are the Christians that voted for Joe Biden because they had a sympathetic view um, against uh, the rhetoric of Donald Trump. And and I even have, I know Christian friends um, in evangelical circles who put together coalitions to vote for Joe Biden, um, to have Republicans turn blue to vote for Joe Biden because of Trump. And I and I want to just say to them now, like, how are you feeling now? How are you living now? How's the oh, economy yeah. Looking for you now. Not to mention the fact that the moment he got in office, he immediately signed something overturning what Trump had done um, on on the uh, pro life issue. So, um, so not only is that video, and I would encourage anybody. I, I hate to do this because it doesn't deserve any more views than it's already gotten. But I would encourage people to go look at it and and to really try to wrestle with their own conscience about what's being stated in this video. So Phil Vischer, for those who don't know, is the creator of Veggie Tales, and he, uh, in a sense, not really mockingly, but almost mockingly, mocks Christian Republicans for being one issue voters. Um, and this came out about the time that Trump was uh, going to be reelected. And um, so he creates, my first problem with this video is that he creates a straw man. He says that Christians vote Republican because they believe that Republicans will put pro-life judges in who will overturn Roe v. Wade. Now stop real quick right there. 
I, I know we talk about this from time to time, but I, and maybe this is just my experience, I don't know a single Christian who is believing that the reason that they need to vote Republican is so that Roe v. Wade alone can be overturned. All right, so I just I, w- I just want to give you some of this stuff, and then I want you to, to respond to it. So the reason we vote Republican, and I believe that we need to encourage even, I, I, it needs to be beyond one issue voters, but one issue voters are okay if it's this issue. Um, we vote for people like Trump because uh, he stood with over 20 countries to promote life internationally to the UN. So he stood with 20 other countries who were pro-life in the UN's presence. He defunded Planned Parenthood at least $30 million. Um, And by the way, Planned Parenthood contributed $45 million to Biden's campaign, and 98% of their contributions uh, go to Democrats. And I bet you can't guess, Seth, how many goes to Republicans. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Yeah. and, uh, and, and so the, the reality is, is that there's so many other issues here, plan, defunding Planned Parenthood, executive order type stuff is among them beyond Roe v. Wade. So this is coming from a Christian. The very first comment on that video said something like, I wish more Christians would think about these issues like you have. And I see, and I, and again, I'll reiterate this. I know these Christians in church who have just absolutely adopted the culture um, as their operating principle of theology, rather than actually grabbing a Bible in a conscience. So, um, what was your response when you saw that video? I mean, I had friends from college that I went to Westmont with who were like, "Isn't this such a thoughtful video?" I was like, "No, this is blatant bigotry." Like, oh my gosh! Like, open your Bible. Like, you know, be a little more thoughtful. And Lecrae reshared this. Lecrae loves Phil Vischer. Lecrae sh- should actually be under church discipline right now, by the way, um, for campaigning with Raphael Warnock. And John Ossoff, the two, the two pro-abortion and maniacs in Georgia who got both Senate seats, which now has endangered pre-born children in the state of Georgia significantly more. And guess what? Because those guys both run their Senate seats, this was a special election runoff in January, you remember, that was going to dictate yep. the balance of power in the Senate. Because they both won their Senate seats, the Senate goes 50-50 with Kamala Harris, the tie-breaking vote. Lecrae helped give one of the greatest wow. gifts to the party of death and the abortion industry in decades, which is to put the most pro-abortion politician in American history, Kamala Harris, as the tie-breaking vote in the Senate. That's thanks to Lecrae. He should be under church of discipline right now for that. And he says he's pro-life. Pathetic. Phil Vischer says he's pro-life. Pathetic. Phil Vischer is a bigot. And let me tell you what I mean by that, because now people are like, oh, resorting to ad hominem attacks. No, I'm not. What is bigotry? Bigotry is the discrimination against someone else for being different. Right, Reed? It's, the, it's discriminating against someone else for being different. Yeah, ideological, ideological bigotry. Well, particularly, though, if that, if that discrimination is based off of immutable characteristics, right? Hmm. That's why racism is so disgusting and why it's an affront to human dignity, because our black brothers and sisters don't have any control over their skin color, right? And then if you discriminate against a woman because she's a woman, that's particularly nasty because she has no control over her gender. So, so bigotry becomes the most nasty forms of it are when it's based off of something you have no control over, immutable characteristics. Right. And so pro-choicers are actually bigots, right? Because they discriminate against the unborn based off of their size, their level of development, the fact that they're in the location of a womb, and because they're more dependent on their mothers. These are immutable characteristics. So Phil Vischer is a soft bigot because he says he's pro-life. 
but he doesn't support he doesn't believe that the unborn is intrinsically valuable enough to warrant political protection. Yeah. And and why does he not believe that they're valuable enough to warrant political protection? Because he said vote for Democrats, the very party who denies political protection to the unborn. Now, now just to not to push back, but just to, for clarification, did he actually endorse voting for Democrats? I know he was trying to injure. Uh, it was that's the implication, right? But did he actually say that? Yeah, when you create a video as a Christian as to why it's justified to vote for Democrats. Okay, dude, I mean, maybe you didn't say vote for Joe Biden. But but by the way, Lecrae essentially did. Lecrae was helping campaign for pro-abortion Democrats, which is a tacit, which is a, as an approval of their of their run. Yeah. You want people to vote for them. So maybe Phil Fisher didn't say that, but he, he makes he, he makes an apologetics uh, case for why it's okay for Christians to vote for Democrats, the very party yeah. that denies political protection. By the way, and as a side note, using false statistics, he suggested that Roe v. Wade would only uh, impact uh, abortions by 12%, and then like healthcare in Maryland would impact abortions by like 37%. Like nationally, bro, or are we talking like in a county? You're just lying or, and then he doesn't even cite the, where the statistics come from. That's right. So let's dive into that. But first, I just wanted to say that Phil sure. Vischer is actually a bigot. Like if you say that a certain class of human beings are human beings, but that they don't deserve protection in our laws, uh, then you're a soft bigot because yeah. you're saying that, yeah, they have some dignity, like they have some value, Reed, but like not enough value to get protection in our laws. Then like you're a soft bigot. Like yeah. maybe it's not hard bigotry that says that the unborn isn't a person, but it's it's still soft bigotry. Okay. Yeah, so. So what does he say about, about this? He says, vote for Democrats because Democratic policies decrease abortion. And look at this chart I found over here somewhere. It shows that when Democrats are in control, their policies decrease the abortion rate. Well, firstly, like you said, it's actually a straw man because the, the goal of the pro-life movement, read is not to decrease abortions. <laughs> it's to make abortion illegal. Yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah. And unthinkable. Unthinkable. Meaning that not only do we want to pass laws to protect the preborn. Like we actually want to communicate to the next generation um, and, and rebuild the social fabric and the moral compass of the country so that they'll hate abortion. Like we want abortion to be as, as horrific in point. the minds of Americans as slavery is today. Yeah. That means making it unthinkable. So question, Reed, can you make abortion unthinkable as long as you vote for the Democratic Party, allow them to dwell in positions of political power when their platform refers to murdering the preborn as reproductive health care? Yeah. As long as you allow the euphemisms of choice to disciple the next generation of Americans, they will continue to think about abortion as as merely reproductive health care rather than genocide. And so so law functions as a teacher, Reed. Right. Aristotle made this point. Aristotle yeah, once said Paul that too. statecraft is soul craft. Statecraft is soul craft. What did he mean by that? Well, he meant that the state through its policies and legislation dictate what kind of behaviors are acceptable and not acceptable in a civilized society. So law functions as a teacher. Law teaches the society and particularly the next generation that, hey, these behaviors are evil. These behaviors are good. Right. The law wants to encourage the good and punish evil. Right. Yeah. And the Bible talks about that. Uh, the, and, you know, the Bible also said that the, the state doesn't bear the sword in vain. So there's a role for the state to punish evil and evildoers and to promote the good. And so um, question, Reed, do you think America was ready for abolition? No, America wasn't ready for no. abolition. Uh, we, when, didn't we fight a war over it? What was it called? <laughs> um, oh, yeah, the Civil War. I guess we were pretty divided and we the social fabric was not ready 
for the abolition of slavery. But guess what? Lincoln and the abolitionists read stepped in anyways and, and said, we are banning slavery now because this is disgusting and evil. Come on. Um, and, and then it took 100 years yeah. to rebuild the social fabric, didn't it? So uh, slavery gets banned in, uh, um, uh, is it 1865? Yeah, I think you're right about that, yeah. 65. Civil Rights Act, 1964, right? Yeah. Uh, 99 years <laughs> yeah. between, between when slavery is made illegal and when blacks actually have full equality before the law. So that took a long time, didn't it? But wasn't it a good thing that the politics stepped in, that the state stepped in, that laws were passed? Yeah. Saying you cannot treat black individuals like this. But I want you and your listeners to think about something. It would have taken a lot longer for blacks to achieve full equality before the law if we hadn't banned slavery, Reed. Right. So it still took us 99 years with banning slavery. How much longer do you think it would have taken to get to the Civil Rights Act yeah. if we hadn't used the law through political power, through Republicans wielding political power to ban slavery in 1864? Yeah, and, and just to reiterate, the goal here is not less abortions. The goal here is to, dis- to get rid of abortion. And to make it illegal totally. and unthinkable. Completely. So you can't make abortion illegal, Reed, by voting for the party whose freaking platform says abortion through all nine months of pregnancy and funded with your tax dollars, you Republican bigot, Reed. You can't make abortion legal by voting for that party. No. And so while we might celebrate some decreases in abortion, Reed, um, that's not our goal. And then you also can't accomplish our second goal of making it unthinkable. If you vote for the very party who describes that procedure as reproductive justice yeah. and helps craft legis- who helps craft, craft curriculum for our public schools that say abortion is reproductive health care and women need abortion to be fully equal to men. So you so it's a straw man. You can't actually achieve what you want by voting for Democrats. But the stats and the claims read, they're actually false. The claim that that abortions decrease under Democrats ignores the fact that abortions have been decreasing, read, across partisan presidents. That's right. Uh, so you had Reagan, right? And then you had Clinton and you had the Bushes. Um, you had Obama. The whole time, the abortion rate was decreasing. Yeah. So so it's like you can't purely um, uh, you can't purely uh, apply that purely to Democrats. Yeah. And I, and I looked this up too, Seth. I wanted to mention this. I looked this up, too. Um, so hold on to that thought. I looked this up too. Uh, multiple articles confirm that it is it's certainly not Planned Parenthood tr- not trying to do their job that abortions are going down. The reason abortion is going down is just simply that people are having less children it has nothing to do with the abortion industry, not uh, going into high gear and continuing to do everything that they've done since uh, since they've been in motion. So um, so it's just absolutely a false claim that it doesn't matter who's in office, that abortions are going to keep on going at pace. It just simply has to do with a more cultural phenomenon than, it's, than it does with who's president. It's, it's a few things. People are having less children. Pro-life laws are actually effective in saving many children as well. And thirdly, yeah. the invention of the ultrasound and ultrasonography that has forced the American mm. public to look at what the child looks like at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 weeks old has humanized the child in a way that we haven't been able to before. Um, and that significantly decreased the abortion rate. And also pregnancy resource centers now outnumber abortion clinics two to one. And there's been an 80% growth of pregnancy resource centers between 1980 and today. And so these are clinics that provide all of their resources for free and all of the non-controversial healthcare services that Planned Parenthood provides minus the baby murdering part. And so more pregnancy centers, more ultrasonography, more humanizing pictures of the child, more pro-life laws and people having less children. On top of all of that, Reed, Bill Clinton 
in 2000, when he became president, said that states no longer had to report their abortion data. Mm. And so so states are not required to report their abortion data. Want to guess the names of any of the states, Read that don't report their abortion data? California, New York, Virginia, <laughs> some of the states that kill the most preborn children. So now we just kind of have me. to guess. We kind of yeah. have to guess the numbers of abortions. So Bill Clinton and Democrats weren't responsible for decreasing the abortion. States just stopped reporting their abortion data and then got credited with decreasing the abortion rate. So the whole claim is fallacious the whole way through, yeah. but but primarily because it's a straw man. We don't want to decrease abortions. We want to ban it. And you can't ban it by voting for the party who literally say at the top of their platform, we're going to protect abortion. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris Reid have said that they're going to codify it into federal law yeah. so that states who pass pro-life laws, every single one will be deemed unconstitutional, despite the fact that many of them are already deemed unconstitutional. Well, you can't make abortion illegal by doing that. So that's the first reason. And the second reason is that is that Phil Vischer ignores the fact that law functions as a teacher, as I said. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to humanize the child, restore dignity and legal protections to the unborn child, the law is actually part of the role. The law plays a role in, in humanizing and, 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 and restoring the social fabric of America. Yeah. Yeah. What he does is he does something called reductio ad absurdum, which in debate is a logical fallacy. He reduces the argument of Republicans to the most ridiculous version of the argument, which uh, I really don't think, again, I'm, I, I'm appealing to experience, but also I have 18 years of ministry um, uh, going all over the world speaking to Christians. And I really, I know we talk about it, but I don't know a single Christian that says my one issue vote for pro-life is that they will overturn Roe v. Wade. There's not a single Christian that is voting one issue voting based upon Roe v. Wade. They're simply doing it based upon the atrocity of of pro-choice and the death of the unborn. And I, quite frankly, I, I'm appalled that a Christian would suggest that that is not sufficient basis for being able to be a one-issue voter. And so if, as a Christian, if if that isn't the right basis for being a one-issue voter, I would love to know what is. It's like yeah. the non-Jesus party. Does, do we have to invent that for the, for it to be a one-issue party? Phil Vischer is actually using a – he's actually using a racist slavery strategy in that argument. And I'll mm. finish with this just yeah. to really make sure your listeners understand what a bigot Phil Vischer is. So did you know that many racists um, – read? they actually argued – um, whilst, while during the abolitionist movement, while Lincoln and others were trying to abolish slavery, do you know what they would argue many times? They would say that, hey, in states that favor abolition, we're actually seeing an increase in the rise of racial violence hmm. and, uh, and, and, the, and huh. the death of, of black individuals. Why, yeah. Reed? Well, because those pesky Republicans, those GOP people, they're creating tension amongst the culture and societies that are very comfortable to slavery because they're very accustomed to it. And by favoring abolition, it's creating racial tension. And so there, you're actually more likely to get increased rates of racial violence in states that favor abolition. And so if you really want to decrease the instances of racial violence, Reed, you'll vote for Democrats, the party of slavery, because while they're enslaving black human beings and calling their murder, um, you know, just plantation care and, and economic rights, um, don't worry, they'll, they'll take care of their slaves a little better. 
but it's really it's really actual racial murder and racially motivated violence that's happening in states that favor abolition. Yeah. So reject the GOP's plan of abolishing slavery and vote for Democrats. Very similar thing when Phil Vischer says, hey, if you want to decrease the rates of fetal violence, you'll actually vote for Democrats who policies have been shown to decrease the abortion rate. What a stupid argument to make. <laughs> and so this this guy can only make that argument read by assuming that the unborn is not fully human or possessed of the same rights as you and I, because we know that Phil Vischer in his sanctimonious piety and his moral clarity on slavery in 2021, he wrote the piece in 2020, would never say that he couldn't be a single issue voter in 1858 or 1860, yeah. right? We all know Phil Vischer would be like, oh yeah, obviously slavery functions as a litmus test of the Republic. And I would totally be a single issue voter. In fact, I would probably say that Christians yeah. had a moral obligation to vote for Abraham Lincoln because of the scourge that slavery represented on our country. Yeah. Well, one could argue, Reed, that abortion is more evil than slavery, because while it's wrong for the same reasons, slavery doesn't always result in the murder of slaves. Abortion always results in the murder of the unborn. Yeah. Um, and it's killed significantly more babies than slavery ever did. And so one could actually make the moral case that it's more evil. And so if Phil Vischer would claim, and we all know he would claim this, that, that Christians should have been single-issue voters in 1850 in order to get rid of slavery, but he doesn't claim the same thing on abortion today, then he's assumed that the unborn is not as deserving as rights and protection in our laws as the black-born people who, who he claim are intrinsically valuable enough to have protection in our laws. So he's a fetal bigot. Yep. So that's why I appreciate people like you. And I, I do have to throw a side note in here uh, and tell you why I appreciate you. I appreciate not only your boldness, your articulate um, exposition with all of these issues, but also the tenderness and the mercy with which you approach them. Now, to be sure, you're direct and you're blunt, and thank God for that. But also to you season what you say with grace. And you did that really, really well when you spoke at our church. And I've I'd never heard anybody really do that before, um, mostly because we tiptoe around the issue and don't really right. have anything except milquetoast sermons about uh, the pro-life issue once a year. Um, so I, I really do just want to encourage people to listen to more of what you have to say on the issue, even if you weren't convinced by any of the things we talked about today, and you're still maybe kind of wishy-washy about where you stand on this issue. Uh, let people know how they can uh, consume more of your content and stay up to date with kind of some of the stuff you're doing. Yeah. Praise God. Yeah. Thank you, Reed. Yeah. So you guys can subscribe to my podcast, Unaborted with Seth Gruber. I recently moved to two episodes a week. So I do one okay. with me a week, either, either stuff from my speaking stuff, but typically it's me and I'm on the road right now, but typically my Monday episode will be me in studio. Um, and so it'll just be me going through what's happening in the country, unpacking it. I don't just tell you what's happening. It's not just an informational fire hose. It's like, this is why it matters. Yeah. And, and I, I really unpack the culture of death. And then, and then I have a, I have a guest on once a week to, 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 uh, to talk about what's happening in the pro-life movement, what they're doing. It's really helpful. So, uh, you guys can subscribe, leave me a rating and review. It really helps us reach more people because my, you know, I have the abortion trolls control my podcast and leave nasty reviews. Um, so subscribe to that. If you listen to it for a few months, guys, you'll be a pro-life ninja. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of other good pro-life podcasts out there, but I do think mine, of course, I'm tuning my own horn, but I, I, th I think it's more unique. I think yeah. I dive deeper and, and dive into more ideas and really unpack it more so that people get that 30,000, 60,000 foot view of the playing field and of the battlefield. 
while also getting those intellectual tools they need to defend life. Um, also, if you guys want to book me for an event, um, you can go to sethgruber.com. This is my heart. My heart is for the church. I speak in Protestant Catholic high schools, youth groups, and pregnancy center banquets and conferences as well. But my heart's really for the church because I believe what Francis Schaefer once said, that every abortion clinic ought to have a sign out front that says, open with the permission of the church of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Abortion is happening with the permission of the church because we could end it if we wanted to. We have the addresses. We know where innocent human beings are scheduled to die. Where is the church? Well, we're like the Levite and the priest, aren't we? Read in the parable of the Good Samaritan yeah. who walk by on the other side of the road when there's a bleeding guy in the ditch who needs your help. Well, we have more responsibility than the Good Samaritan actually read because unlike him, we actually know when and where innocent human beings are scheduled to die. The Good Samaritan came upon a bleeding victim and helped him. But if the Good Samaritan knew where the dude was going to get beat up on the road, he would have showed up beforehand to prevent it. Well, we can show up at the addresses of abortion centers where innocent human beings are scheduled to die and try to save them before they're killed. Um, Why wouldn't we do this? This is just Christianity 101. So if you want to book me at your church to wake up your people and your pastor has the cojones to give me the pulpit on a Sunday morning, like Pastor Frank Ramsour from Calvary Chapel Chattanooga, then you can book me. If you're a small church or a small youth group for your listeners, read who are like, we don't have the budget to fly out guest speakers. We can't fly Seth out and put them up in a hotel. This We have an opportunity only available to people who don't have the budget to do this. A, a church partner of mine has partnered with me to underwrite all of my travel and honorarium for any youth group or church that would like to have me wow. but doesn't have the budget to pull it off. I'm, sa- I'm telling you, it won't cost you a dime. Now, please, cr- honor system here, this is only available for people who don't have the budget. If you have the budget, don't take advantage of this opportunity. Don't be a jerk. It's only for people who don't have the budget. Um, so take advantage of that. And lastly, if you're not in Chattanooga, one of the only cities in the country that doesn't have an abortion clinic, one of the only big cities, um, and you have an abortion center in your city, shut it down, rally Christians to show up in sidewalk counseling and plead for the life of the orphan doomed to die. 40 days for life has found read that during their 40 days for life campaigns, they see an upwards of a 70, 70% no show for abortion appointments when Christians are outside praying. Mm. Wait, are you telling me that when the bride of Christ shows up to where God already is outside (laughs) of death camps, that he uses his people, he waits for us to move and uses us through his Holy Spirit? Oh yeah. Yeah. So women are frequently rejecting abortion and not walking into those doors because they don't wanna be seen by others. Why wouldn't Christians be out there pleading for the life of the orphan and promising the help of the church? So go to lovelife.org forward slash America. And I'm an ambassador for Love Life because their goal is to rally churches and Christians all around the country to put a Christian witness outside of the sidewalks of every abortion center in the country that would result in an end to abortion and the orphan crisis. And they're promising the help of the local church and the hope of the gospel. So they don't just ask women to not kill their children. They offer to help raise the child, pay for diapers, pay for the delivery, get them an apartment, get them a car, get them out of a dangerous relationship if they need to, invite them over to dinner, love on them, introduce them to their friends and family members and, and, and preach Christ to them. So this is, this, why wouldn't the church be outside of these death camps? So those, that's how you guys can respond. My podcast, book me for an event and go to lovelife.org forward slash America to fill out their interest form and just tell them that you would like to participate in sidewalk counseling in your city to help shut down abortion clinics. Yeah. Uh, and what an amazing testimony you'll be able to share to those babies who were saved because you showed up and to your families and grandchildren that you played a role in shutting down an abortion clinic and maybe ending abortion in America. 
Amen. Enough is enough. It's time for us to quit being theoretically pro-life, and it's time for us to be actively pro-life. So thank you for your role in activating the church and even putting a little fire under us to, to make sure that happens, man. So God bless you, and thank you so much for being on today. Thanks, Reed. Keep it up. All right. Will do, man. You too. And bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed that conversation episode with my buddy Reed Uberman at the Indie Thinker podcast. Kind of an evergreen episode for you. You can share this with friends. You can go re-listen to it to just fill your quiver with tools to defend the pre-born. We obviously talked through a lot of the different myths and pro-choice arguments, including that ridiculous line that I'm sure you hear a lot, that Democratic policies help decrease the abortion rate. So real pro-lifers should vote for Democrats whose policies will save more pre-born children, huh? Hopefully that was helpful to help you debunk some of those myths. Send this episode to a friend, uh, and hopefully it helps you have greater conversations to protect the pre-born, especially in a political climate that has become so divisive on the issue of abortion, where uh, Christians are told that uh, they have no role for their faith in politics and they should just be quiet or they should vote for Democrats. Um, hopefully we've debunked some of those claims for you and encourage you to stand for life. Uh, in a moment where the church is needed more so than any other time. But if you want to engage with me online and learn more, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B-E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, to see my speaking schedule, if you want to hear me speak live and local, or if you want to book me for an event. My fall schedule is actually filling up fast. So if you want to take advantage of this opportunity to bring me out to your church or youth group or, or a conference, uh, go ahead and act now. We also have a special scholarship available for churches, youth groups, and faith-based high schools who can't afford to fly out a guest speaker, to put them up in a hotel, to pay their honorarium. If you don't have the budget for that, but you'd like to bring me out for an event, I have a church partner that's generous, generously offered to underwrite all of those costs to bring me to you. So take advantage of that. Contact me through sethgruber.com if you're interested in that. Um, and if you uh, enjoy the show, once again, and leave us a rating and review. It really helps us reach more people. We really appreciate it. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted.